This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 73rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is reimagining your company. I'm joined by Martin Reeves and Jack Fuller. They are the co-authors of The Imagination Machine, How to Spark New Ideas and Create Your Company's Future. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Martin is a senior partner and managing director at BCG, i.e. the Boston Consulting Group. He's also the chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute, BCG's internal think tank. Jack is a former special project manager at the BCG Henderson Institute and the founder of Casati Health, a company that reimagines mental and physical health. He's a Rhodes Scholar with a background that intriguingly combines neuroscience and philosophical theology. Welcome to the show, Martin and Jack. Thanks very much, Dan. It's an honor to have you here. Can you give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind? Um, well, the book is about imagination, um, and which is rather neglected by corporations. But if you think about it, over long periods of time, corporations do have this remarkable propensity to start with an idea and to create new realities. Uh, we think that that's a capability that's needed more than ever, um, due to the pace of competition, due to the substitution of routine managerial tasks by AI. But although it's a universal human capability, we don't actually have a handbook. So that's what we've tried to write, a handbook to harnessing imagination in the corporate context. Uh, well, I, I love that. It certainly relates to my childhood. My father was eventually in charge of three imprinted post-it notes. And I remember as a young boy buying some stock and going to the annual empl- uh, customer me- meeting, the stockholder meeting, and you had passed table after table after table of new inventions from the past year by 3M. I can tell you that at the other yeah. corporate entity that I worked for, that was not the case. Uh, so this is very much a, a need. Uh, you have some really striking statistics to open the book, talking about the pace of competition, uh, the fact that companies exiting the Fortune 500 list 
has increased by 36% since the 1960s, uh, and that those who can stay out ahead uh, you know, have really found that problematic in recent years. Looking at the chart you have early on in the book, it really looks like the game changed, especially starting in the 1990s. Obviously, we got the internet, we got Windows 95 coming in in that decade. Is it really around the internet that helped change things, or are there additional factors here that we need to foreground early in this discussion? Yeah, I think one of these most uh, profound changes in business strategy is what it, we call the fade rate. Namely, if you're a leader, if you have excellent performance relative to your sector, how long does that leadership last? So the number in 1990 was about 10 years, and now the half-life of competitive advantage is about one year. Uh, so what does that mean? That means that every company now needs to reinvent themselves. You can't coast on yesterday's successful business model. And we think this is due to a combination of technology accelerating the rate of change, technology accelerating the imitability of business models, uh, globalization leading to more intense competition between uh, heterogeneous players, uh, Chinese and American companies, for example, um, and, and probably other factors too. But the the, the outcome is, is really quite clear that competition moves faster. And so therefore, we need to constantly reimagine our model. Um, you could say that, in a sense, reimagination has become the new execution, the new baseline that all companies need to uh, invest in all of the time. Yeah and, and, yeah, and go ahead, Jack. Oh, just in addition to competition, I would say, looking ahead, one of the big reasons we need to focus on imagination is you know, major disruption and challenges that are happening at a global scale. So obviously, COVID-19 was a great example of that, where something completely outside of your realm of thinking as a business can suddenly affect your business existentially. And, you know, the, you know, be future academics, epidemics, climate change, you know, um, many other global problems that we'll really need to use imagination for. Okay, so let's just set down another marker here early on. So imagination, uh, and you chose that term as opposed to innovation, but obviously there's going to be a linkage between the two. Can you maybe set up both of those seminal terms to this discussion for us? Well, there's a lot of discussion of um, innovation, uh, the creation of, of, of novelty, valuable novelty. Um, we wanted to go inside the mind because we think that uh, in order to make a change in the world, you first need to make a change in the mind and really the whole area of uh, mental models and challenging mental models and multiple mental models we found to be quite neglected in the strategy literature. So that's, uh, that's one aspect of this. And then um, also we're, we're not so much interested just in the conception stage, just in the innovation stage. We're interested in the cradle-to-grave uh, cycle of ideas uh, right from the uh, very beginnings, the surprise that, uh, um, that triggers imagination um, through to the routinization uh, and and the disruption of, of, of yesterday's yesterday's idea. So we wanted to connect, if you like, execution and innovation and the mental part of innovation, imagination. The, the other thing that we want to get in there is the idea that this is um, not just a, a procedural issue. It's a, it's a social and it's an intellectual process. We want to bring all of those dimensions into play. And just to clarify those two concepts as well, innovation versus imagination, Innovation for us really means that just the general process of creating something new. So imagination refers specifically to, at the level of an individual, to this capacity in the brain to create a mental model of something that doesn't exist yet. And as Martin was saying, we're looking at not just the brain capacity, but how that plays out between brains and also in the context of a, an organization. So imagination is the crucial human capacity 
um, at the heart of programs of innovation, but also goes beyond that to look at um, rethinking an entire company or reimagining a whole industry. Okay. Now, uh, there was a whipping boy in this in this book, which was the Romantic movement, as opposed to Aristotle. Uh, I'll put aside for the moment studying the English Romantic poets at Oxford and, and my continual love for William Blake and uh, John Keats in particular. Uh, why the, the Romantics come in for uh, some, uh, you know, some rebuke or some suggestion that there, there's limitations there that are unfortunate, particularly in a business setting? Well, I would say you know, the Romantic movement, which was a movement in the largely 18th century in Europe, um, really affected a lot of our culture today, but particularly the areas of our culture that are around creativity, artistry, imagination. So before the Romantics, there was an idea that creating something uh, is a process that could be systematized. It involves many people. Um, so the construction of a cathedral was a, an example of this, a project, um, a kind of corporate project. Um, and then the Romantics came along and they introduced this idea that creativity was a kind of divine spark that certain special individuals had access to. And by going into a room and getting in the right mindset, they could suddenly produce uh, genius ideas. And that had a huge influence over culture. And, and I think a lot of our understanding around imagination takes on elements of that romantic idea. So we tend to think, we tend to heroize um, key geniuses and we think imagination is kind of a mystical process that you can't really systematize and control. And so with the book, we wanted to take a, uh, the approach that Aristotle would have taken to these things to say it can be systematized, even though it's a complicated part of human nature. Let's understand what triggers it, how to cultivate it, how to harness it. Um, so that's what we've attempted to do with this book. Okay, no, fair enough. Uh, Martin, anything you wanted to add on that front? Um, yeah, I think th there is uh, obviously no absolute truth in relation to a subjective term like imagination, but I think businesses need to think about, you know, how can we usefully define imagination? We wanted to define it not as waiting for special individuals and special moments, but to create um, some um, sort of structure that could be uh, could be harnessed. And um, although the literature is rather thin on this, we, we thought it was quite reasonable in the sense that business doesn't shy away from other complex and unpredictable aspects of human affairs, like understanding consumer psychology uh, or understanding team motivation or team competition, composition. So why should we shy away from trying to systematically harness imagination? And this was borne out by some of our early research where we found that around 90% of CEOs see imagination and reimagination as a, a really vital capacity in the long run, uh, but about the same proportion um, actually uh, admitted having no systematic approach to harnessing imagination. So that was the need that we tried to fill. And do you find that, uh, you know, given the results we just cited, uh, that was more of a, a difficulty in some sectors than others? Uh, was just so, some profiles that made, made sense where it, it wasn't a fit in one industry, but in another one it could be? Um, well, actually, it was... Uh, Fairly universal, the need, actually. So ah, look at this okay. decay rate, um, the fade rate of competitive advantage. That has accelerated in, in all sectors. Um, if you're a leader in performance in your industry, how long does that last? A contraction is occurring in all sectors. Um, also, the, the threat of um, uh, artificial intelligence substituting routine cognitive and managerial activities, you know, that's feared in most sectors. Um, you know, world-changing unpredictable events and challenges like... Um, global warming and the COVID epidemic, you know, they are not sector specific. And 
the inertia, um, the challenge that large corporations have reimagining themselves, again, is not specific to any sector. So we, in theory, we could have found huge sector differences. In practice, we, we, we didn't really. Okay. Fair enough. Um, you mentioned AI. I, I wanted to go there. There's a whole chapter devoted to it in the book. And I wanted to tell listeners, in case you haven't uh, taken a sneak peek inside on Amazon for this book, it is beautifully written and it's even more beautifully illustrated, including the use of color in some of the illustrations. And one of them is on page 166, where you've got a four quadrant chart regarding the interaction between humans and AI. And in one case, where AI pretty much just stands alone. Uh, could you maybe elucidate what this chart is that I can look at in front of me, but the listener cannot? Sure. Um, you know, we actually drew this chart from a book by Kai-Fu Lee called AI Superpowers. So it's it's a version of his chart. And, um, you know, we, we have a relationship with him and, and he was happy for us to adapt this. Essentially, there are two axes. So on the vertical axis at the top, you have empathetic um, roles that require empathy. And at the bottom of that axis, you have systematic roles that require systematic thinking. And then on the horizontal axis, on the uh, far left, you have efficient roles that are about doing something, uh, optimizing a process. And then on the other end, you have roles that require imagination, um, creating a new mental model. And so on this, we map out all of the different jobs ranging from teacher to customer support agent to mechanic to scientist in terms of uh, how much imagination they require and how much empathy versus systematic thought and um each quadrant uh there's a different way that we can look at how ai can work with humans to enhance that kind of job so uh, just a couple of examples in the uh, bottom left quadrant jobs that are very efficient and very systematic things like air traffic controller truck driver um mechanic those roles are very susceptible to full replacement by ai because in theory you can work out how to do this and have an AI, um, uh, you know, take over the role. Um, whereas uh, in the top left, you have roles that are efficient, but which involve empathy. So something like a nurse or a waiter or a customer support agent. Here, um, AI can do a large part of the job. Um, uh, an example of this is actually a, a physician, where an AI could do the analysis of x-rays and some of the other data-oriented tasks. But around that, you need an, a kind of envelope of empathy where the human is the one interacting with the other humans in the job. Um, yeah. So some of the implications of this are um, um, where to focus human cognition. So as, as AI rises in importance in corporations, you know, what do we do with the human brains? And um, I think this way of thinking says, well, focus them on more uniquely human cognitive activities, ones that involve empathy or imagination. Uh, yeah, like a second implication um, is to say, well, um, can AI support um, uh, human imagination? And we we think that it can. Actually, there are tools already out there, um, things like um, semantic network analysis and visual analysis of large amounts of data, which show the surprises, show the anomalies in large in large complex data sets that can used to be used to uh, trigger and uh, facilitate imagination, and then. The third um, uh, sort of implication is a reconceptualization of organization that we talk about in the book. In other words, if you think about an organization not as a hierarchy of static human roles, uh, but rather the interaction of human and machine cognition uh, in dynamic ways that facilitate aggregate learning, 
um, basically everything changes about how a, a company or an organization uh, works. So um, AI may be, in some sense, is the, the opposite of imagination today. Uh, AI cannot do imagination. It cannot analyze the data which doesn't exist on things that don't yet exist. Um, but the evolution of the imagination of corporations will be very much tied up with the synergy with AI. Yes. Yeah, no, I thought this was one of the strongest chapters in a very good book because you, you know, you're not sure you're coding the fact that some things are going to have to change and there's going to be some some stress involved and people are going to have to exert themselves. But on the other hand, it really paints a picture, a nuanced picture of different roles and different opportunities and how the two can can bring a different future. So I, I liked it very much. You're talking about here, and it's the title of the episode, reimagining basically the, the entire company. Uh, maybe it's because I've been reading a few books recently about diversity and unfortunately the lack of change in, in uh, diversifying, especially the management ranks and, and the inclusion that's just not there. How do you see what you're about in this book vis-a-vis uh, diversity and inclusion? Yeah, I think you know for us, uh, one big point of intersection there is the idea of cognitive diversity. So um, this is obviously a key part of, of the reason why you'd want a more diverse workplace. And uh, when we think about cognitive diversity around imagination, it really helps us see the value of having diversity. So having people involved in a discussion or in the, the business who come from many different backgrounds with a whole range of life experience, you know, from different, different groups, um, different perspectives, they bring a whole range of different mental models to the conversation. And imagination works when you have mental models challenging, uh, being challenged. And so new information, new surprises can, can arise from people who come from different backgrounds and help um, trigger the reimagination of mental models. The other part sure. of that is uh, just to mention, you know, having a, a large stock of different mental models, so different perspectives, different worldviews around different disciplines as well can help you be more imaginative. Well, and in fact, I must say, Jack, given your background, it's not everybody who brings together neuroscience and theology uh, in their in their studies. Um, can you speak to that for just a moment? That's quite a, a journey, and then you're in the business realm. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, actually, you know, one of my heroes is uh, Goethe, who is the German poet who features in this book. And I really like his approach to his career because he was obviously a great poet and a great writer, but then as soon as he wrote one of his famous books, he went to work for the Duke of Weimar, uh, which was a bit like joining a small business in that day. And he actually became um, kind of, he was involved in the accounting of um, the the silver mines. Um, and But he did this with a real purpose, which was to combine different ways of thinking. He, he did like the romantic ways. You mentioned those poets, you know, he, he grew up being very romantic, but then he wanted to, appreciate the the parts that the romantics tend to forget so he talked about like the beauty of accounting i think that he has a poem about the beauty of double entry bookkeeping and, <laughs> and so for me you know i, I wanted to, un, to to sort of explore um uh i guess philosophy and and the realm of, of ideas but then i wanted to connect that with with, with action and, and business so that's why i um, found my way to consulting okay mm. Yeah, one of the fun aspects of the book is that um, since there wasn't a lot in the business literature on imagination, we had to look more broadly to see, you know, what do we know about imagination? So we looked at history, uh, philosophy, art, um, and and uh, neuroscience and uh, and evolutionary biology to to figure mm. out what we know and what we don't know about imagination. 
I can certainly appreciate that. I, I published a book in 2008 called uh, Emotionomics, and the degree to which emotions was being discussed in the business literature uh, was pretty scant at times. So I had to draw from a lot of other sources to make my my case and talk about the applications. So I can certainly appreciate that. Mm. Um, the the staying with the yeah, because to me all these things are, are interrelated. If we're going to talk about reimagining the company. So I brought in diversity and inclusion because the statistics have crept along in terms of getting more people in the executive ranks and on the boards. What about the implications, including AI, for some other seminal issues in business that could and should be perhaps you know um, reimagined? Um, let me go with engagement and retention. <clears throat> We're in what now is being called the great resignation. There is a lot of people, almost as if it's a, a midlife crisis, people who are rethinking you know their job role the company they're at uh the career field they want to be in i think it was in april or that 2.8 percent of the workforce resigned uh the largest number in something like 30 years so in reimagining the company coming out of covid19 which is now covid21 and counting where might this apply to to those kinds of issues yeah i think there's a number of phenomena there so we, i do think um in our analysis uh covid has accelerated some some long-term trends. Um, so, for example, two, two sectors which account for a large proportion of GDP, which are notoriously uh, impervious to change, are education and, and healthcare. Uh, but we saw a lot of movement in terms of the adoption of uh, online methods, um, uh, even, in, even in those two sectors. Um, so it could be that this a propensity to um, to reallocate and uh, to recirculate talent was already there as a pressure, but it's been unlocked by COVID. And then I think a second factor is um, the fact that a crisis may seem to be a temporary departure from normality and then a return to that normality. But our analysis says that 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 is almost never the case. That the uh, the recovery recovers to a different reality with altered needs uh, and behaviors. Uh, and then, of course, while this very rapid crisis um, is going on, it was the one of the fastest recessions and the fastest recoveries in uh, uh, in, in in economic history. Uh, you still have the slow moving forces, and and the slow moving forces we've already touched upon. For instance, the acceleration of the fade rate—the fact that we're living in an Andy Warhol world where it's not um, it's not difficult to be famous or high performing for a company for 15 minutes, but it's rather difficult to, uh, to sustain that. And in, in that world, basically organizations need to reinvent themselves. Uh, talent needs to reinvent itself and talent needs to, uh, to, to, to circulate. So I, I don't think the circulation of talent is, uh, entirely a, a bad thing. It's an adjustment to a, a circumstance that requires, um, a lot of, uh, adaptation and, and fluidity. And I think, and what have you, yeah. Competition for ahead, as well, just to pick up on your point, Dan, about engagement and retention. I think, you know, a lot of the reason why people are dissatisfied is that their imaginations are not engaged at work. And we we feature some great companies in the book that do manage to engage the imaginations of their employees as an asset and create new businesses and new ideas out of that. Um, but I think the reason that imagination is not so central to companies is that it hasn't been systematized. Uh, managers don't know how to, to measure it and to understand its different components. So in the book, we also outline how you might um, assess imagination as a skill with all the subcomponent skills. And that could be part of, you know, for example, performance assessment. Um, and doing that would really build imagination into the culture of a company and 
um, encourage people to cultivate that skill, um, you know, and to have it valued, which could really help with with their engagement. Yeah, there's a connection with a, a, another agenda um, in this respect too, which is uh, what I call the rehumanization of the corporation. So the um, going back to the industrial revolution, in, in a sense, part of the agenda was um, to um, it sounds rather sinister, but to uh, to, to systemize, systematize and standardize the use of human labor, almost to make uh, people into uh, predictable machines uh, that uh, that fed predictable um, processes. Um, but as this emphasis on creativity and uh, rejuvenation, reimagination increases, uh, we actually need the part that has been standardized away. We need the um, the whole human to bring the whole human capability to work. And, and that requires making a workplace that is attractive to humans and deploys all human capabilities, including uh, including imagination. So that's yet another reason for embracing um, imagination, which is as demographic aging progresses in developed countries and the war for talent um, becomes uh, a quite an important uh, aspect of re- re- remaining competitive. Um, you know, how attractive in human terms um, are we making the corporation? Oh, I think that's an absolutely excellent point. I mean, I, I'm looking at the statistics regarding millennials being, what, 75% of the workforce within three, four years. And then you look at what they're looking from that experience. They don't expect that they're going to survive in the job necessarily long term. Job security, you know, is a lie. Uh, but, you know, does it speak to their value system? Do they find it work meaningful? Uh, indeed, do they get to use their imaginations? So let's go to a couple of examples you have in the book. Uh, one is recruit holdings. Uh, can you talk about that model and what they've they've been doing? So yes, recruit um, came to our attention because they are an excellent serial business model innovator. So recruit basically is a company, a Japanese company that um, supplies B two B services, and um, they've reinvented many stagnant industries over time and have been. Um, quite entrepreneurial for what is now a, a large company. And when we looked at how they achieved that, we found something very interesting about um, uh, imagination. So the, the core of the book is that we lay out a six-step process for taking ideas from, from cradle to, to grave. And the, the fourth stage is the social stage when ideas spread. And Recruit really is a master of, of, of that step in the process. Um, so in their view, um, ideas don't travel with statistics; they they travel with stories, um, and they travel with the with the celebration of entrepreneurship at what they call festivals. Um, and so, their entire HR system is about celebrating and recognizing entrepreneurial heroes—the people not with the biggest businesses of uh, yesterday, but have cr- freshly created uh, new businesses. In fact, when I went to visit the company the first time, they invited me to spend a week with them. They said, we're going to introduce you to the most important person in the company. I was expecting to meet the CEO or perhaps the CFO. Instead, they introduced me to a gentleman called Mr. Yamazaki, who was a celebrated serial business model innovator. And we talked about businesses that he had founded. So that's very much their culture. That's, that's you know, wonderful. From a um, practical perspective, how that looks is if you're an employee at Recruit and you have an idea, it's very easy to put together a team from across departments of anyone else who's interested in developing that. And then they have a number of stages where you can get funding, um, various forms of support. And it's quite easy to get that funding at the early stage. You don't have to prove it entirely before you'll get support. 
Um, and then, as Martin mentioned, there's, there's great ways to share those ideas and to build momentum behind them. And the result is you know, they've created a number of new businesses that recruit owns and managers and brings them um, you know, hundreds of millions um, from new businesses generated through that. Yeah, no, it was, it was really exciting and refreshing to read about what they're doing. Another one I really enjoyed was, I guess it was the, the, the India division of Unilever, the CEO, who sent employees out en masse to talk to customers. Can you tell us more about that one? Yeah, that was, um, the, so the CEO, uh, he became the new CEO around 2010 and, and this uh, India's largest um, consumer goods company, uh, Hindustan Unilever, had been relatively flatlining throughout the, the early 2000s. And his idea as part of kicking things off and stimulating imagination was to send every single person in the company um, to the field for one day and he told us that that meant literally everyone. So everyone in every department, the executive team, uh, the secretaries, uh, had to go out and visit all the places where their products were sold, usually in small um, convenience shops, you know, in, in rural Indian villages. And they were all given a series of questions they had to answer, which included, what did you see that surprised you? Um, what did this teach you about what we're doing? And uh, what should we stop doing that we're doing? And what should we start doing that we're not currently doing? Everyone out to the field answered those questions and then came back and shared their thinking and uh, it stimulated many new ideas and rethinking and many observations that triggered imagination. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Having been in corporate headquarters, I mean, I was amazed how how much the customers, you seem to lose sight of them and it's all about internal turf battles and bloodletting and imagination's a far cry from what's going on. Um, before we run out of time, I wanted to turn it over to you and just make it open-ended. Is there some key point detail here that you want to work into the conversation that we haven't had that opportunity? Some place you want to yeah, get, I mean, get to that we, that we haven't? I think it's your turn. Um, well, I think, um, you know, the central thesis of the book, um, just to give an overview, is, is, is that it is possible and necessary to try to systematically harness imagination. Um, and that involves um, a lot of variables that are cultural and really quite tractable to leadership. Um, so for instance, external orientation, you're not going to see the surprise that we described in the uh, Hindustan Lever example, um, unless you're uh, out uh, outside the company. Um, but we know that companies have this uh, propensity as they grow to become very introverted. So that's, some, that's something very tractable to, uh, to leadership, I think. I mean, the second thing is, um, you know, the, the enemies of, of imagination are cultural too. It's uh, complacency um, or at the other end of the spectrum, fear. Um, leaders can have a, an enormous influence on whether a company becomes complacent and falls into the success trap, um, sees its success as, as a birthright and believes in the infinite continuity of its baseline business um, or whether it's constantly in a state of crisis and, and fear where nobody is going to experiment with new things. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, we'd encourage people to look at this as a practical way to harnessing uh, imagination, um, a very necessary thing and a very practical thing where leaders can have an enormous influence very quickly. And Jack? Well, yeah, I would just add um, one of the key concepts is the idea of mental ambidexterity. So we have to be good at imagination or counterfactual thinking alongside being good at execution and, and operational thinking. And that's a challenge for every individual to ideally be to be good or at least appreciate both sides and for the company as a whole to work out how to build systems that, that cultivate both styles of thinking. Um, and so, you know, it kind of comes back actually to, to the romantic sort of challenge of bringing together the creative and the operational side. And I think the businesses of the future will be, will be the ones that do that very well. 
Okay. Well, I think you're already succeeding because if the goal is to rehumanize corporations, you've rehumanized business books. Uh, this is a refreshing read, beautifully illustrated, nicely written, compelling, brings in sources outside the business world as well as within. Uh, really, uh, really an enjoyable opportunity. I want to thank you both for having been on the show. Uh, this has been Martin Reeves and Jack Fuller. They are the co-authors of The Imagination Machine, How to Spark New Ideas and Create Your Company's Future. This has been episode number 73 of Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, you can find other shows by going either to my company's website at the obligatory 3wsensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network, type in the, the show's name, and you'll find them listed there. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. Uh, there are so many great ones from Albert Einstein that are you know household terms. Uh, here's one of them, his remarks regarding imagination. He says, imagination is more important than knowledge. Knowledge is limited. Imagination encircles the world. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.